Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Hello, my name is David Obelt and today is Sunday, June 18, 2023. It has been 3,399 days since Russia occupied the Crimean Peninsula on January 27, 2014, and one year and 114 days since Russia expanded its war against Ukraine. I'm taking the microphone today to discuss three topics and some housekeeping. First, can we finally dismiss the Russian claims that they have destroyed all the Patriot missile defense systems in Ukraine? Part two of that is Russia's claims that the KH-47 is a hypersonic weapon and claims in the Western and Russian information space that the Patriot system is ineffective. What's the truth? Finally, the infighting between private military company Wagner Group and the Russian Ministry of Defense has reached criticality. Unless the Kremlin is bluffing, some sort of action is coming on or after July 1st. How did we get here and what happens next? Can we put it to rest that Russia has destroyed the Patriot missile systems in Ukraine? When the African peace delegation was in Kyiv on June 16, someone at the Russian Ministry of Defense thought it would be the perfect time to launch 12 missiles at the region, six caliber sea-launched cruise missiles and six KH-47 Kinzhal, allegedly hypersonic cruise missiles. Daytime attacks are rare, but this isn't the first missile strikes on Kyiv when foreign dignitaries were in the city. The caliber cruise missiles can be intercepted by various air defense systems deployed in Ukraine, but only the Patriot system has proven capability of intercepting the Kinzhal. The SAMP-T may also have the capability. However, Moscow has insisted that three out of two Patriot systems, that's not a typo, not components or batteries, full systems have been destroyed. In St. Petersburg on June 17, Russian President Vladimir Putin flippantly mentioned five batteries destroyed. Objectively, it appears he was repeating the Russian Ministry of Defense morning report from May 17, which claimed that a Kinzhal destroyed five launchers in the radar system of a Patriot defense system, the entire network. But given how Russia has claimed to have destroyed more than 200% of deployed M142 high-mobility artillery rocket systems, you might know those as HIMARS, he may have been told that five Patriot systems of the two delivered to Ukraine are destroyed. Take all the time you need. We've already covered how the remains of Pac-3 interceptors were found on May 30th, including at least one Pac-3 interceptor caught on video crashing into a Kiev street. In Ukraine, only the Patriot system can fire the Pac-3. And allegedly, all Patriots were destroyed before May 30th. On June 16th, all six KH-47 Kinzals were intercepted. There aren't many spare Patriot systems in the world for NATO to have secretly replaced them. The reports of light damage to the EPP-3 electric power plant of a Patriot system on May 16th are highly likely to be true. It is also true that the damage did not impact operations during the air raid on May 16th and was, according to our sources, very superficial. There is another aspect to the apparent 100% success rate that the Patriot missile system has had on all targets, including the Kinzals. Four points. First, 
a lot of digital ink has been spilled on the ineffectiveness of the Patriot systems operated by Saudi Arabia. A superior or an inferior weapon is only as good as the soldiers operating that weapon. A well-trained, disciplined, and experienced tank crew with high esprit de corps and a T-72 tank will destroy an Abrams M1 with the right munitions over and over and over again. If the Abrams crew is poorly trained, lacks discipline, has no cohesion, and is inexperienced. Ukrainian Patriot crews are highly motivated. They received training in the United States, and among them were soldiers already operating in air defense units, some of the most experienced soldiers in shooting down missiles on the planet. They're fighting for their lives, literally, giving them very high esprit de corps. These factors matter and impact combat effectiveness. We have repeatedly seen how these factors have enabled Ukraine to punch above its weight. Another factor is trust in the weapon's effectiveness. Any questions about the Patriots' capabilities likely vanished for the Ukrainian operators on May 16th. Next point. A lot of digital ink has been spilled on how the success of the Patriot missile system during the first Gulf War was exaggerated, and the system was and still is hot garbage. The Patriot system's ability to intercept short-range ballistic missiles was only theoretical in 1991, and it was using 1970s technology. The Patriot system had been deployed for 10 years when the first Gulf War started. The success was exaggerated, but the performance was better than 0%. Gen X and older will remember that the first Gulf War was broadcasted live 24-7, and there were clear real-time videos of Iraqi Scud missiles interceptions that we watched in our living rooms. Not many, but not zero. It's important to note that when the Israelis got their hands on the Patriot system after the first Gulf War, the first thing they did was upgrade the software, which they deemed was hot garbage, and it provided an instant and marked improvement. The system has not stood still in development, both from a technological and an interceptor standpoint. The MIM-104F Pac-3 interceptor went into service in 1997 and was specifically designed to intercept ballistic missiles. The Pac-3 has been upgraded two more times and can intercept targets to an altitude of 40 kilometers, 140,000 feet, and it steers itself to the target and destroys the incoming missile kinetically with enough accuracy to identify the warhead portion of an incoming missile and ram it. This is equal to shooting a bullet with another bullet. One bullet is traveling more than Mach 5, and the other is traveling at Mach 4.1. I was traumatized by Sister Mary Irene Francis in the ninth grade in Algebra 1. True story, true name. So my brain cannot conceive the mathematics behind this. The Patriot system has been evolving for longer than some of the people listening to my voice have been alive, and it is battle-proven to be effective. This brings us to the third point. The effectiveness of the Patriot system sends a signal to Russia and other possible future aggressor states, such as Iran, China, or North Korea. The United States has developed the capability to intercept short-range ballistic missiles and missiles traveling over Mach 5. I'm going to get to that in point four. This provides some insight into the anti-ICBM system that the United States has as part of its nuclear deterrent has more teeth to it than science fiction fantasy. 
The United States Missile Shield was designed after Patriot, and the software developed for the anti-ICBM system likely was shared with upgrades to the Patriot software over the last two decades. The United States can probably blunt a very limited first strike. Before you go to bed, snug in your thoughts of an impenetrable shield against ICBMs and nuclear warheads. There aren't Patriot missile systems deployed across the United States, nor the inventory to defend a majority of U.S. urban centers. Patriot systems are very expensive. The U.S. capability to intercept ICBMs using different technology but the same principles are also limited. There's no such thing as limited nuclear war. However, for a state hostile to the United States, if they didn't factor potential interceptions into their war plans, they're going to have to start doing it now. And that leads us to point four. The KH-47 Kinzhal does not meet the definition of a hypersonic weapon. Achieving Mach 5 is hypersonic speed, but that only gets you a participation trophy. The German V-2 rocket development started in 1936, levering the research and innovation of Dr. Robert Goddard of the United States and traveled at, let me check my notes, Mach 4.7 in 1942. Even if German scientists squeezed out 500 more kilometers per hour, no one would be declaring the V-2 rocket as the first, quote, hypersonic weapon, unquote. To be a true hypersonic weapon, it needs to be able to maneuver in flight while traveling at over Mach 5. Not a little, a lot. That's why nations working on real hypersonic weapons are having massive technical challenges. Aggressive maneuvers to avoid interceptors, like the Pac-3, generate tremendous stress on a missile that is already suffering from heat stress. At speeds over Mach 5, the air around the missile can heat to over 1,000 degrees centigrade, which causes molecules and atoms in the air to disassociate. That is, literally break apart. This is quantum physics that is way above my pay grade. This is why U.S. hypersonic tests have quote-unquote failed, while Russia boasts that they have hypersonic missiles. It isn't a hypersonic weapon because it is incapable of significant maneuvers in flight. It is just a very fast air-to-ground ballistic missile with, according to the University of Google, a very poorly designed nose cone due to the quantum physics I mentioned a moment ago that are out of my pay grade. The Kinzhal is not an unstoppable superweapon, but it is a very fast air-to-ground ballistic missile. Going forward, when we refer to the KH-47, that's how we will describe it. The investment in the U.S. Patriot missile systems to intercept SRBMs has been battle-proven, and the track record is impressive. Western nations and allies of Ukraine need to stop questioning the abilities of their citizens and soldiers to adapt and learn. We have almost 18 months of real-world examples of how quickly Ukrainian soldiers can do both. And finally, never underestimate the capabilities of a soldier defending their home and family. Did Russia destroy or disable any Patriot missile batteries in Ukraine? No. As far back as November 2022, we concluded that Yevgeny Prigozhin of private military company Wagner Group was on a collision course with Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu. In February 2023, the clash between the Kremlin and Wagner reached a boiling point. 
Prigozhin went public that he wasn't being supplied with ammunition, and the Kremlin had stopped talking with him. A month earlier, he had been cut off from recruiting from Russian prisons, and when the Russian Ministry of Defense announced that Soledar had been captured, Wagner mercenaries got no mention. They were referred to as volunteers. Sergei Shoigu also formed his own private military company called Storm Z. It's unclear how serious the ammunition situation really was, but there was a decrease in Russian artillery activity in the second half of February in the Bakhmut operational area. It appeared in April that the rift had been repaired. Wagner was getting mentioned in the Russian Ministry of Defense morning reports, and there was no alleged shortages of ammunition. As May approached, Prigozhin went on the attack again, making new claims he was cut off from ammunition, that he was experiencing staffing problems, and that PMC Wagner in Ukraine was reaching its culmination point. He stated that his mercenaries would withdraw on May 10 without additional support. It's worth noting there was nothing to indicate there were ammunition shortages in April, except for anti-tank guided missiles, which was an issue for Russian forces across all of Ukraine, which we have covered several times. But Prigozhin had a problem. Reportedly, he had signed a contract to capture Bakhmut. That was his exit. And the Kremlin said, according to him, that if Prigozhin and his mercenaries withdrew, they would be charged with treason. The war of words continued. Prigozhin vowed to stay until Bakhmut was captured, even though he declared on May 6th that its full capture really wasn't important. On May 20th, he declared, mission accomplished, Bakhmut is captured. And almost a month later, we still have not seen a single picture or video of Russian troops or mercenaries at the former MiG-17 statue, among other areas on the western edges of Bakhmut. We have maintained that PMC Wagner never brought all 41.6 square kilometers of Bakhmut under their full military control, and that state continues to this day. The situation between Shoigu and Prigozhin has only gotten worse. Neither is backing down, and neither has an off-ramp to de-escalate. Since the start of June, as Prigozhin did a press tour across Russia that looked more like the start of a political campaign, Russian military commanders and Colonel General Ramzan Kadyrov of Chechnya have openly accused PMC Wagner mercenaries of abduction, torture, robbery, sexual assaults on Russian troops, and executions of Russian soldiers. Kadyrov accused Prigozhin of defrauding the Russian Ministry of Defense through his lucrative food contracts. And Prigozhin is also accused of massive theft of fuel products. While these issues happen in the halls of the Kremlin on days that end in Y, Russian leaders are happy to ignore these issues up until the person committing these acts falls out of favor. A decree was signed earlier this month that all Russian private military companies and volunteer units are to be liquidated and sign contracts with the Russian Ministry of Defense. Private military companies are illegal in Russia, even though they have blossomed in the last year. Former Prigozhin ally Kadyrov was the first to publicly sign an agreement, making Chechen Akhmat and Amman subservient to the Russian Ministry of Defense. Shoigu is liquidating Storm Z units, which, from a Russian standpoint, was the best decision as individual and unit discipline and a willingness to fight for Mother Russia have been major issues among Storm Z units. What about Prigozhin and Wagner Group? He refuses to sign any agreement, and he has until June 20th to do so.
On June 17, he released a truly bizarre video, even by Prigozhin standards, of him going to the Russian Ministry of Defense to deliver his, quote, signed contract, unquote, to the Russian mod. In a four-minute video where he keeps asking, did you get that? Like a teenager TikToker creating a gotcha video, he visits the headquarters of the Russian Federation Armed Forces to deliver the paperwork. The woman behind a secured and barred window refuses to take the papers and closes the one-way glass window. Prigozhin then walks back out to the street, holds up the contract, and declares, you see, they refuse to take my contract. I'm trying to do the right thing. I am the victim. What is it with Russian leaders and the professional victimhood that they embrace? Then Prigozhin released a copy of the <clears throat> contract through his Concord Group public relations arm. The contract he went to deliver is not the one given to all private military companies fighting on behalf of Russia. It was his own contract. That stipulated that PMC Wagner would have autonomy and access to all the recruits, weapons, and ammo it demanded. Simply put, versus reading two pages of political theater to you, Progrosian's contract would sign control of the Russian Ministry of Defense to him. I wonder why they didn't take the paperwork. We're now to season eight of the Prigozhin show. This has been going on for eight months. And if you're starting to feel ambivalent and exhausted, we are too. What's the end game? Someone has to blink. If no one blinks, then someone will have to make a move. Can we see Wagner mercenaries in armed conflict with Russian soldiers? That's quite a leap, but the chances aren't zero. Could the Kremlin and Shoigu ignore Prigozhin and Wagner? That's also quite a leap, but the chances are not zero. Could Prigozhin have a sudden bout of depression after drinking tea, resulting in falling out of a closed and locked fifth floor hospital window that can only be opened from the outside? That's also possible, but we would presume it would be very hard to get to Prigozhin for any assassination attempt, even within Russia. Prigozhin claims that other volunteer units have reached out to sign with PMC Wagner versus with the Russian Ministry of Defense. But lately, Prigozhin has just been saying a lot of things. Is it possible groups like the Russian Imperial Legion and Reich, both far-right neo-Nazi Russian militias that have worked with Wagner in the past, are looking to join forces? At an organizational level, it's probably questionable. At an individual level, well, that seems almost certain. There's another issue that isn't being brought up in all of this. What happens to their African operations if PMC Wagner signs with the Russian Ministry of Defense or the Russian Ministry of Defense does a forcible takeover? It's one thing to have the Kremlin operating shadow wars through mercenary fighters in Sudan, the Central African Republic, and Mali, among other nations. Having Russian... <clears throat> Volunteer units engaged in direct military action with no more plausible deniability is an entirely different situation from a geopolitical standpoint. Further, Wagner's African operations are largely paid for by mining interests in gemstones and precious metals, especially in Sudan. It seems very unlikely that Prigozhin will just walk away from these multi-million dollar operations and hand them over to the Kremlin without a political or literal fight. It is equally unlikely an increasingly cash-strapped Russia will allow Prigozhin and his proxies to continue to profit from these operations. 
laundering profits from selling Russian oil and stolen Ukrainian grain is much harder than hiding profits from blood diamonds and other raw gems and 24-karat gold bars. Further, the Russian industrial military complex needs gold to produce electronics. This is a story that will need close monitoring in the coming weeks. Two things are clear. Season 8 of Game of Thrones, The Wagner Chronicles, has completely jumped the shark. The second thing is our assessment back in November 2022 that the infighting between the Kremlin and Wagner would negatively impact Russian military operations in Ukraine turned out to be very accurate. And now we wait to see who makes the first move. This leads us to the housekeeping segment of today's podcast. Where did the Daily War Report go and what is going on with Linnea? No, I'm not going to ignore the 800-pound elephant in the room, and I really wanted to do this sooner than before today. Linnea has left our team and did so without notice. To use a military analogy, right now, we are podcast ineffective and the loss of Linnea was a mission kill hit. The situation is unfortunate. For the podcast audience, the best thing I could say is, Linnea is left to seek more time with her family and other opportunities. We attempted to negotiate with her in good faith at the start of June, and she's made her choice. What does the future look like? First, I want to thank our patrons and our subscribers. Our total number of subscribers has remained stable through the last two weeks. This has enabled us to continue to produce the Daily Situation Reports and focus some more energy on Flash Reports. The Daily Situation Report is the foundation for the podcast and is released 12 to 18 hours before the pod. Some have found a benefit of getting the updates 12 to 18 hours ahead of time. Still, I readily acknowledge that reading 40, 50, up to 70 pages is time-consuming, and many prefer audio and video. What does the future look like? We are weighing three options at this time. There is potentially a fourth option. Option one is to bring on new talent and continue as before. Alas, with a new voice, and there's nothing we can do to change that. We are talking to two people, but it is very preliminary. This is going to take at least four weeks to interview, evaluate, and develop a contract that everybody is happy with. What's the benefit to you? Our audience is familiar with the format, and we've received strong feedback that part of our value was the breadth and depth of coverage where fighting is ongoing. Not just the, there's fighting here, but the analysis and the assessment and the predictions of where the next moves would be, of which we've had an excellent track record. Option two, we are considering producing a hybrid version of the podcast. Using natural AI voice, we can accelerate the time of production and close that production gap from 12 to 18 hours to three to eight hours. The AI portion of the podcast would be under 10 minutes, focusing only on combat operations. Real humans would do all analysis, and we will continue to do interviews, again, with real humans. We've done some very early analysis of natural AI, and some are quite impressive, and some are quite frankly terrible. Option three is we do two to three weekly podcasts that provide analysis and interviews and no longer do the daily war coverage. This is the path of least resistance for our team and focuses on our existing and remaining strengths. But it doesn't provide the breadth and depth of battleground information that you, our listeners, have told us loudly is what makes the Russia-Ukraine war report unique. 
Over the next two to four weeks, we will defer to the third option because that's the scope of our capabilities. We will likely experiment with natural AI just to test the waters, and we will likely have a guest host or two to see if it's a good fit for us and, most importantly, for them and you, our listeners. What can you do? If you're listening to this right now and thinking, I, I could be the voice, I'm going to caution you, it is a tremendous amount of work and you wallow in a lot of awful. If you're interested, we can have a conversation. Certainly, we need continued support from our patrons and want to see our subscribers grow. $5 a month gets you access to the daily situation reports and interim flash reports. There's a link in the podcast description, or you can find us by searching for Malcontent News on Patreon. I know, it's not optimal. It keeps you in the know during this transition and backs the rest of the team. The third thing is, a few people decide it would be in their best interest to leave negative reviews about the podcast due to this break. If you feel we deserve five stars, please leave a review on Apple or other platforms you may use. And if you don't feel we deserve it, let us know directly, and we'll try to address your concerns one-on-one. And that's what we know. Thank you for listening. We'll get through this together. My name is David Obelts. I'm the Chief Content Officer for Malcontent News, and there is so much awful in the world. So please be good to each other. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.